morning. It's great to see all of you here this morning. I know we got folks watching online as well, so good to see you too. My name's Dave, and I'm the pastor here at Connect, and I'm thrilled that you've chosen to join us here today. We're actually um, talking about mountaintop experiences currently at Connect Church. And the reason we're talking about that is there are some great um, stories throughout the Bible of, of things that happened on the top of a mountain. So we've been looking at a few of those over the last few weeks. We're going to look at another one this morning. Um, but part of the reason I'm enjoying talking about these mountaintop experiences is because I myself was in the mountains uh, about a month ago. Uh, for those who don't know, I was on a trek. Uh, this is actually not, oh no, that's the, that's the slide. I saw it line up behind me and I thought it was my first picture. No, we're good. No, no, go back to the slide. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> this is the series, Mountaintop Experiences. I was in the mountains a month ago uh, on a trek to the base camp of Mount Everest uh, with some other pastors and leaders, and our goal was to raise money to help plant churches around the world. So that kind of became my inspiration to want to talk about some of these great stories of mountains. But uh, despite the fact that a month ago I was in the Himalayas, it wasn't my first time up into the mountains. Many times I've been uh, in the mountains here in the Rockies and even in Europe, in the Alps. But um, 10 years ago in 2012, I figured it out, I was at the top of a mountain called Pikes Peak, which is this picture right here. So, uh, and maybe some of you have been to Pikes Peak. It's out in Colorado, uh, I think just outside of Colorado Springs. This was in September, uh, but there's snow on the top of the mountain. Uh, I was a lot colder back then because I didn't have a beard, so you can tell I wasn't uh, enjoying the being up there in that cold weather. But um, went to the top of Pikes Peak, and uh, if you've ever been there, it's uh, just a little over 14,000 feet, 14,115 feet. Uh, it's not the highest peak in North America, in the continental United States. That's Mount Whitney in California at 14,500 feet, so it's just a few hundred feet shorter than that, but it's a very high mountain, and when you're on the top of um, Pikes Peak, as you look out, you're at the top. Here's a, a panoramic picture I took of, um, you know, from the very top there, and you can see the clouds below, all the other mountains below. I mean, we were at the highest point here as I looked around at the surrounding area. It's a great place. I loved it. Um, I have a theory, though, because if you've been to Pikes Peak, you'll know that you can drive all the way up to the top, and then when you drive down, there's a sign that says uh, you're approaching a brake check. And what it is, is the, the descent is so steep and long that they're fearful that your brakes could overheat and stop working. So you have to stop about a third of the way down the mountain, and this guy comes out with this gadget, and he holds it to your uh, brakes, to your wheels, and if they're too hot, he makes you pull over and uh, wait about half an hour until they cool down before continuing on your journey. So they stopped us. I mean, I was trying really hard not to brake too much. I was in a low gear, but obviously I braked too much because my brakes overheated. They pulled me over, made me stop right there. Then I watched, and I noticed that every car that came down they were all stopped. They all, the reading was too high. They were all stopping. So we had to stop right there by this gift shop. There's like a gift shop right there. That's, that's where we had to stop. And after a while, I'm like, surely every car's brakes aren't too hot. But no, sorry. So you're going to spend at least half an hour in that gift shop. Just walk around, check things out, you know, have a drink, buy some snacks, whatever you want to do. So I think a little bit of a conspiracy is going on there at Pikes Peak. But anyway, um, I digress. So being at Pikes Peak looking down was incredible. What blew me away when I was out in the Himalayas on my trek was when I was at the same height 14,000 feet, here is a picture I took 
I was like in the foothills. Like I'm at 14,000 feet here and there are still mountains towering above me all around. It was crazy to think that at the same height out there in the Himalayas, you're just getting started. There are mountains up in the 20, uh, up to the high 20,000 feet surrounding us. Now of all the places in the world, Israel is not known for its mountain ranges. They don't have a lot of high mountains. In fact, when we were on this trek, we came across a monument that I took a picture of. And this monument was a gift from Israel to Nepal. And it's two rocks. One of the rocks is from the top of Mount Everest, 29,000 feet, the highest place on earth. The other rock is from the Dead Sea in Israel, which is the lowest place on earth. And Israel wants to commemorate the fact that, um, you know, the highest and lowest points of planet Earth are together there in this monument. So Israel, not known for its high mountains, but there are some. And there are enough that we've been able to tell some mountaintop stories in the last few weeks. This morning, we're going to talk about a mountain that you can find in Israel still to this day. Um, it's a, a mountain by the name of Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel is actually a mountain range. It's not one single mountain. It's a mountain range. Uh, it's about 24 miles long, and uh, it's in northern Israel. It stretches from the uh, Mediterranean Sea all the way to the heart of Israel. And at its highest point, it is... 1,791 feet. So it's really not the highest mountain in the world. It's not even the highest mountain in Israel. But there was something that took place at the top of that mountain about 3,000 years ago with a prophet by the name of Elijah who found himself there with the king of Israel, the people of Israel, and 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. Baal and Asherah were two foreign gods who um, the king's wife, the king of Israel at the time, his wife Jezebel, had introduced into the land of Israel. So before I get into what was going on on the top of this mountain, let me give you a little backdrop as to why this was all happening. So from the time of King Saul and King David, you might remember King David, he was David and Goliath and he went on to become the king of Israel. Prior to King Saul, who was before King David, Israel didn't have any kings. And the reason they didn't have any kings is because that was never part of God's plan. God had led the people of Israel out with Moses into the, the wilderness. God had led Israel and, and, continue, and that was his desire to wanna be the leader of Israel. But the problem was that the surrounding nations, they all had kings. So after a while, Israel was like, well, we want a king. God, we don't want you to be our king. You know, we want a king that people can look at. You can still lead us and you can lead that king, but we want a physical king. So God relented and he brought King Saul to be a king and then David, his son. And then along comes Solomon, David's son. And sadly, from Solomon on, we start to read these stories of these, these kings who really kind of lost sight of the goal, really strayed away from, from God. So we see these ups and downs. There were some good kings, but there were a lot of bad kings. And the king we're gonna talk about this morning, he was one of the bad kings. In fact, he was probably one of the worst of all of the kings of Israel. His name was Ahab, and listen to what um, is said of this particular king. Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight, even more than any of the kings before him. 
And as though it were not enough to follow the sinful example of Jeroboam, he married Jezebel, the daughter of King Ethbal of the Sidonians, and he began to bow down in worship to Baal. First, Ahab built a temple and an altar for Baal in Samaria. Then he set up an Asherah pole. He did more to provoke the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than any of the other kings of Israel before him. So these kings, they're not doing very well. And we get to Ahab, who really is the worst of the bunch so far. The prophets of Israel, the people who were kind of representing God in Israel, they, they knew the bad things he was doing, so they tried to challenge him. They spoke out against him. And because of it, the king and his wife tried to have them killed. There's a verse that says, Has no one told you, my Lord, about the time when Jezebel was trying to kill the Lord's prophets? I had to hide a hundred of them in two caves and supply them with food and water. So because of Ahab's disobedience, God sends judgment upon the land and he causes there to be a drought that lasts for three years. Now this is really significant because Baal, this God who they're worshiping alongside God, it's not instead of, they're just choosing to worship God and Baal. So Baal, he's the God of weather. So ironically, the God of weather who they've chosen to worship isn't doing too well because for three years now, there's been no rain. And this is where we're gonna jump into our mountain story. It's in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse one. Later on, in the third year of the drought, the Lord said to Elijah, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Ahab went out to meet Elijah. Now bear in mind, there's been three years now without rain. Ahab and his wife, they've been trying to kill the prophets. They've been looking for Elijah. When Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, so it is really you, you troublemaker of Israel. I've made no trouble for Israel, Elijah replied. You and your family are the troublemakers for you've refused to obey the commands of the Lord. You've worshiped the images of Baal instead. Isn't it crazy that when he meets Elijah, he tries to blame Elijah for his problems? If you're a parent here this morning, maybe that's not too crazy. Maybe you've had a similar interaction with your children. You walk up and you, you find one of your kids literally with the crayon in their hand next to the wall with a pen on it. <laughs> and you're like, what have you done? It's not my fault. <laughs> you told me to color. <laughs> or my brother, he gave me the pen. He made me do it. <laughs> you're like... Dude, the pen is in your hands. It is your fault. You did this. But we shouldn't really be surprised at this trait of humanity because you can trace it all the way back. You, you read about this going on with Adam and Eve. If you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in, in the garden, God gave them this beautiful creation. He says, you know, you can do anything you want. All of this is, is yours. Just don't eat from this tree. And, and Eve ate from the tree and she gave Adam the apple and, or the fruits and Adam ate the fruit as well. And God confronted Adam in the garden of Eden for breaking the one and only rule he'd been given not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And listen to Adam's response in Genesis 3.12. He's, he's literally, I mean, he's there with it in his hands. He's like, and God sees him. He's like, dude, what did I tell you? And this is Adam's response. The man replied, it was the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. You, you gave me the, I mean, like Adam's response, instead of owning up to his wrong, he's like, but God, you gave me that woman. It was your fault. You, you caused this. 
In the same way, in, rather than owning up to his mistake, he tries to find blame in anyone else but him. And I think that's what's going on with Ahab here. Rather than owning up to the fact that he knew he shouldn't be worshiping these other gods, these other idols, he tries to come up with these other reasons as to whose fault it is. So Elijah has an idea. Elijah decides to, to, to show the people of Israel that day whose God really is the most powerful. And he shares his idea, verse 19, summon all Israel to join me at Mount Carmel. He doesn't wanna just do this for the king. He wants everyone to see what's about to happen. Everyone to join me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who are supported by your wife, Jezebel. So Ahab summoned all the people of Israel and the prophets to Mount Carmel. So they all make their way on this trek up to the top, 1,790 feet of Mount Carmel. Then Elijah stood in front of all of them and said, how much longer will you waver, hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. So Elijah decides it's time for a showdown. It's me and it's the prophets of Baal. It's like high noon. That's the moment that's about to take place, okay? And I love this because it's not like God said to Elijah, I want you to go and do this. Elijah just knew which God was most powerful and he wanted to prove it in that moment. So he comes up with this amazing idea. He says to them, I'm the only prophet of the Lord who's left. Baal has 450 prophets. So this crazy idea of God is gonna illustrate how powerful God is. And he, he tells them the idea. He says, listen, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna build two altars right here on the top of this mountain. We're gonna gather some stones and some wood and some straw, and then we're gonna get an animal, we're gonna get a bull, and we're gonna kill the bull, and we're gonna cut it up, and we're gonna put it on top of this altar, and we're gonna offer it as a sacrifice to our gods. Your altar, you can offer it as a sacrifice to your God. My altar, I'll offer it as a sacrifice to my God. But rather than set fire to it and offer it as a sacrifice, we'll ask our gods to set fire to the sacrifice themselves. Okay, so we're gonna, we're gonna bring this to our gods and, and we're gonna ask our gods to, to light the fire of this sacrifice. So there's 450 of you, so why don't you guys go first? And here's what happened. Verse 26, they prepared one of the bulls and they placed it on the altar. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noontime, shouting, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no reply of any kind. Then they danced, hobbling around the altar that they had made. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them. You're gonna have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a god. Maybe he's daydreaming or is relieving himself. Yes, right there in the Bible, Elijah says, maybe he's in the bathroom. <laughs> maybe he's going potty and that's why he can't hear you. <laughs> or maybe he's away on a trip or is asleep and needs to be wakened. <laughs> Now at this point, these prophets have to be a little bit worried. They're probably even embarrassed. After all, their God is the God of weather. He has lightning at his disposal. Just light the fire, <laughs> send down some lightning. But they figure out maybe it's not God's fault, maybe it's not our God's fault, maybe it's our fault for not asking intensely and passionately enough. 
Verse 28, so they shouted louder. And following their normal custom, they cut themselves with knives and swords until blood gushed out. They raved all afternoon, which I think is funny because I picked a rave, but that's just the way my head works. (laughs) (laughs) They raved all afternoon until the time of Eden's sacrifice, but still there was no sounds, no reply, no response. Finally, Elijah calls all the people over there who are watching, all the people of Israel, and he says, okay, come over here. Come check this out. He finds 12 stones to represent the 12 tribes of Israel. He assembles them into an altar. He piles wood onto it. He cuts up the bull, places it on there. Then he goes a step further. We read in this passage that he actually digs a trench around the whole thing and he gets four large jars of water and he pours them over the entire thing. And he does this three times. So 12 large jars of water. So basically when he's done, his pile is drenched. The stones are wet, the wood is wet, the the straw is wet, the trench is filled with water. We were at a friend's house just recently. This is even in my notes, but I just thought about this. And we had a little bonfire going outside and uh, uh, the husband decided to put some wood on and his wife said, isn't that wood wet? He goes, it's fine. Well, if you've ever tried to burn wet wood, not only is it not burned very well, but it starts popping and crackling. There were bits of fire flying out all over us. Our dog was with us. He got a bit landed on his head. There was a bit landed on my wife. It was, so, wet wood's not good. You don't want to start a fire with wet wood. But Elijah... He soaks the thing. The trench is full of water. And in verse 36, at the usual time for offering, the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet walked up to the altar and prayed, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prove today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O Lord, answer me. Answer me so these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. He doesn't pray for hours and hours. He doesn't cut himself or rave or do anything else. He just says a couple of sentences of prayer to God. And we're about to discover that faith actually isn't the most important part of this story. You might say, well, surely, Dave, your your faith is, is the most important. But yes, yes, I would say that faith is a very important part of our journey, of our following of Jesus. But at the end of the day, our faith isn't as important as who we put our faith in. This is what we learn in this story on this mountaintop. Who are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your faith in this morning? Because if we look at the way these prophets of Baal behaved, I don't think it was a lack of faith. I mean, they were, there was blood flowing. These guys had a lot of faith and passion and zeal. It was just misdirected. All their faith was in the wrong thing. But Elijah, he knew how powerful God was. And when you know how powerful God is, you step out sometimes in that faith because you just know that God will be God. I got a friend, Phil. Phil lives in Australia, and uh, we were together in England about 20, 30 years ago on a missions program, and um, still to this day, I remember this story Phil told me, and I love it. 
Phil was at an airport somewhere traveling and he was in the gift shop and he was buying something for his family and, and he looked across and there were these two teenage boys, maybe young adults, college age kids, and one of them um, was wearing this black t-shirt and in white letters on the front, it just said, Satan rocks. And it just kind of bugged him. My friend Phil was a follower of Jesus and uh, you know, he just kind of felt uncomfortable reading that. You know, and he, he was kind of walking around a little bit more shopping. He's praying, he's talking to Jesus about it. He's like, oh Jesus, I just really feel bad that that kid's wearing that shirt. You know, and that's what he believes. And, and he just can't leave it alone. So he goes up to the kid, he goes, hey, I, I saw your T-shirt. He goes, do you believe that? The kid's like, yeah. <laughs> he's like, why? Why do you think Satan rocks? He's like, I don't know, I just do. He's like, well, why? Why would you, why would you think? He goes, well, I just think he's powerful. And Phil says, we know God's more powerful. This kid's like, oh, he's kind of uncomfortable. I don't know about that. Phil's like, would you mind if I, I proved it to you? This kid's like, okay. He goes, could I just say a prayer for you right now and, and ask God to show you how powerful he really is? Now, I love this because Phil's faith is in the power of God. It's not like God said, hey, Phil, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go over there and talk to this kid and do this. If I think up in heaven, the angel looking down going, uh-oh, uh, God, you better come check this out. Phil's doing something crazy again. I think he might need our help. Something, he's talking to this kid. He's, he's telling this kid about you. And, but Phil told me this story. He says, I just, I just felt like I had to just show this kid. So I, I just put my hand on his shoulder and said, God, I believe that you are more powerful than Satan. And I just pray right now in this airport gift shop that this, this guy would know without any shadow of doubt that you are more powerful. And this kid goes, whoa. And his friend went, what is it? He goes, I don't know. He goes, but when, I was, when that guy was praying for me, I just like felt this, like this, this, this feeling, like this power. And Phil says to him, I believe that's because God wants you to know today that he is more powerful. And if it's power you're looking for, the, the, there's more power that can be found in God. And that was the end of the encounter. I said to Phil, whatever happened? He goes, I don't know. I went and got a plane. <laughs> But I just felt like in that moment, I had to, to just respond to this kid who was, who was looking for, who was believing, you know, that this is where the power lies and show him that God himself is more powerful. So let's see what happened when Elijah did the same thing as Phil and uh, prayed to God, put the power of God to the test. Verse 38, immediately the fire of the Lord flashed down from heaven and burned up the young bull, the wood, the stones, and the dust. It even licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell face down on the ground and they cried out, the Lord, he is God. Yes, the Lord is God. Then Elijah commanded, seize all the prophets of Baal. Don't let a single one escape. So the people seized them all and Elijah took them down to the Kishon Valley and he killed them there. And then right after this, verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go get something to eat and drink for I hear a mighty rainstorm in three years they've been without any rain and then God sent the rain this is such an incredible story as I read it you know that took place in this mountaintop thousands of years ago but it just shows me the power of God and I love that stories like that didn't end in the Bible just in our short history as a church here at Connect Church, I've had the great, great privilege of standing on this stage and standing on the stage at Washington Middle School and telling you stories of what God has done in this church and through this church, and I've not really been able to explain it. I've had to just say it was the power of God. Only God gets the credit for how this happened. I'd love to tell you, this is my idea, I'd love to tell you that we made this happen, but it can only be attributed to the power of God. 
Fundraising goals we've come up with that have been blown beyond any understanding. Lives that have been changed. The stories I've encountered over the last 10 years of lives that have been transformed and changed. Provision of property at just the right time in just the right place. Churches we've been able to plant around the world. And it's only been because of the power of God. And it was the power of God that day that lit the fire and put an end to the drought. A testimony to the power of God. When I was preparing this message last week, I was, I was studying, I discovered that 1,500 years after this, in the 6th century, Pythagoras, the Greek mathematician, made his way to this mountain. It's recorded that he visited the mountain because of its reputation for sacredness, and he said that this was the most holy of all mountains. So after 1,500 years, in the 6th century, this, this famous Greek mathematician wants to make his way to this mountain where this miracle took place. Because still, people were remembering the power of God that happened there. If you go to Mount Carmel today, you'll see a place there called uh, Maraca. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's right there on the top of the mountain. We've got a picture of it here. It literally means the place of burning. And again, this isn't like the mountain that I was at a few weeks ago where I was surrounded by mountains all around me. This was the mountain top. When you stood on the top of this mountain, when you stand today on the top of this mountain, you look down on the valleys around. You look down on the Mediterranean. You look down on the Kishon Valley where the prophets of Baal were killed. And for the last 150 years, you can see that monastery there has been on top of the mountain. It's called the Carmelite Monastery. We've got a close-up picture of it. There it is. The altar at the center of this monastery is built on 12 stones in honor of this miracle that happened thousands of years ago. There's even a statue in the courtyard of this monastery of Elijah wiping out the prophets of Baal. And that's still there today because of the mighty power of God. Because of what happened on that mountain thousands of years ago. I just think that's incredible. That the power of God would inspire such great things to happen. And as I was preparing for this message, as I always do, I, I was excited because I was looking forward to sharing this story. Maybe some of you have heard this story before. Maybe for some, this is the very first time you've heard this story. And I think it's a great story. I love that the prophets of Baal tried so hard and nothing could happen. And then Elijah doubles down. He makes it soaking wet. And then he just writes one sentence, a couple of sentences to God of prayer. And the fire comes down. I love the illustration of the power of God. But. What I always find myself doing when I'm working on these messages is thinking, but on Sunday, I'm gonna to talk to, to the folks that connect. And actually, before Sunday, God, what are you saying to me about this? What can I learn from this story? Thousands of years later, how can I apply this in my life? That's the way I, I read the scripture. I, I love reading the stories of the Bible, and I love what they tell me about the, the wonderful men and women of God who, who went before us. And I love the stories they tell us of the power of God at work. But I find myself saying, but God, what are you teaching me in this? On Sunday, when I share this with the congregation, what can, I, what can I use to challenge us to maybe go away from today thinking, well, how can I live differently? What can I take from this story and apply to my life? And I think one of the answers to that question I came across this week can be found in the middle of this passage in a question that Elijah himself asked. 
I'm going to have Elijah ask us that same question here this morning. Elijah stood in front of them and he said, how much longer will you waver? Hobbling between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. So maybe Elijah's asking that question to us this morning. How much longer will you waver? How much longer will you hedge your bets between these two gods? Now, don't be wrong. If I was to go around the room this morning asking how many of you uh, worship Baal this morning, I'm guessing that number would be low. Maybe just two or three. I'm not sure. <laughs> Probably none. <laughs> so you're like, well, Dave, why are you even saying it? Because that's obviously not an issue for us. But the reality is Baal was a god that they worshipped, but Baal was an idol. Baal was something that they set up against gods. They, they weren't willing to give God everything in their lives. They weren't willing to put all of their trust and all of their faith in, in God and God alone. They wanted to kind of hedge their bets. This Jezebel had come in. She told them all about this God of Baal who controls the weather. And they're like, well, we're not gonna take him instead of God, but maybe we'll have him as well as God. You know, now we got all our bases covered. And Elijah is basically saying, hey, choose this day who you'll serve. Who, who are you gonna choose? And what I started to wonder is, I wonder in my life if there are some things, some idols that I've allowed to creep in, that they've become like Baal in my life. Did you ever consider this morning that maybe we've just replaced Baal with other gods? What could they be? They could be our identity, money and material things, jobs or status. They could be people, leaders, politicians, entertainment. The list could go on, but things that we've put in our life that we, if we're not careful, we tend to trust more than God himself. Now, don't get me wrong. None of those things I just listed or other things are wrong in and of themselves. But if we're not careful, we can allow them to become idols in our lives. And I know this morning that many of you here are followers of Jesus. And there could be some of you here who are not. You're still kind of trying to figure things out. You're not sure what you believe. But if you are here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, throughout Scripture in the Old Testament with the people of Israel, when Jesus came and he began to teach, you hear this message again and again and again. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus is saying, put, put God first. Trust him with everything. Don't allow these, these other idols to creep in. Give everything to God. You can have these things in your life, but don't let them consume you. Don't let them become bigger than God in your life. In fact, Tim Keller, a famous pastor, he has a book called Counterfeit Gods, and he defines idols in there. I love his, defini his definition. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Let's leave that on the screen for a minute because I, I get uncomfortable reading that. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I find it easy to say, well, no, 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 God, you're first in my life. There's nothing that's more important to me than you until I read the definition of what can be an idol, what can be more important? It could be anything that absorbs my heart and imagination more than God. Then I start to think about my days and my week, and I start to think about what absorbs my heart and my imagination. And I start to ask myself the question, man, am I letting that absorb my heart and my imagination more than God? 
anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. I start to think about things in my life where I'm like, man, I, I should be going to God first with that area of my life. But I find myself going to this instead. I think it's a great exercise this week for all of us to, to ask God to examine us. Especially if you're a follower of Jesus this morning. God, when was the last time I asked you how much? Imagine a, a, a pie this morning. You know, I, I think God wants, you know, if our lives are like a pie, he wants us to have, he wants to be the whole pie. We make the mistake sometimes of kind of dividing the pie up into slices. And well, God, you've got a big slice. I mean, you get Sunday mornings. You get a little bit of time each morning when I pray. And, you know, these, but when I get to work, God, that's different. You know, when I'm here, that's, God's like, I don't want just a slice of pie. I want the whole pie. And I find myself asking the question, am I wavering? Am I hobbling between opinions? I wrote down a, a few phrases that I was thinking about when I was reading Keller's example here. I trust God, but I'm really worried about my retirement account right now. And I'm allowing it to absorb my heart and imagination more than God. I trust God, but I'm also worried about my job or my health. And I'm allowing it to absorb my heart and imag imagination more than God. I trust God, but I'm really worried about the upcoming elections and I'm allowing it to absorb my heart and imagination more than God. Now listen, hear me carefully this morning. There is nothing wrong with financial planning. There's nothing wrong with managing your money. There's nothing wrong with keeping tabs on the job market or your current health status. There's nothing wrong in voting according to your conscience. I think we have to go to God on a regular basis and say, but God, am I allowing these things to absorb my heart and imagination more than you? Because Elijah was pretty clear. He says, how much longer will you waver? Hobbling between two opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. Give him everything. There's nothing wrong with these other things in our life as long as they don't become more important to us than the God who can send fire from heaven and completely burn up the wood, the rocks, and the straw. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much this morning. And it can be very easy for us as, as followers to become distracted by things in this world and things of this world. And, and Lord, there's nothing wrong with living our lives and, and looking at the things within our lives, Lord. But if we're not careful, sometimes they, they can become like idols to us. They can become like uh, modern day uh, Baal. Because what we end up doing, Lord, is we elevate these things to where they become more important than you. And we elevate these things to where they become uh, more of a concern than our trust in you, Lord. So, so just help us, Lord, when... Uh, things around us are changing, the world's changing, financial things are going on, Lord. When all these things are happening around us, Lord, we won't waver because we've put you over and above everything else. We don't wanna be like the kings of Israel who lost their first love, who didn't get rid of you but lowered your importance in their life. This is really difficult, Lord, but we can do it with your help. We know, Lord, you don't want us to do this in our own strength. You want to help us. It just takes us adjusting the compass, just, just navigating towards you, saying, God, I want to keep my eyes fixed only on you. And Lord, I believe as we do that, we'll experience your power in our lives like nothing else. We ask this in Jesus' name.